0: And um, uh, unlike some of you, but like many of you in here, I know the stations of across, but I can't say that I, really, I do them regularly. So I did a lot of research on this, and I think I told you I kind of like history and stuff like that. So my brain's going, how did these things come to pass, you know? Um, where did it start? And so what I'm going to do this afternoon, this evening, is take you through a short history of the Stations of the Cross. So, I have up there what's called a spiritual journey, a spiritual pilgrimage. And whenever I do the Stations of the Cross in church, there's always a, you know, a a bunch of people there. And I'm in the pews, and the priest and a few other people are going around. And it's kind of a, it is a spiritual journey, if you will. But, you know, to me, it never really was a personal con- connection. So I'm looking at the stations of the cross and I'm saying, "Okay, this Jesus and suffering and all that type of thing," and it's a very Catholic kind of thing because it's focusing, it's focusing on this passion, and it is just so visceral, so uh, mean what's happening to our Savior here, and. Um, I'm looking at this from the standpoint of this is happening to Jesus Christ. But I'm not really thinking about me and how I relate to that type of thing. So what I'm going to try and accomplish tonight is give you a little bit of the history. But after the talk, maybe get together in groups, you're already in in your chairs, and talk about the station of the cross instead of just a spiritual pilgrimage, but maybe a personal meeting with Jesus Christ. Now, you know, a lot of times when we go to confession, we do an examination of conscience, you know, what I did wrong, what I did wrong a whole bunch of times, what I did wrong habitually, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Maybe I'm gonna see if we can't take the Stations of the Cross and help us think about our own personal lives, the people that we love that are in our lives, and how this spiritual pilgrimage might help me Personally, might help me in my relationship with my loved ones and friends and that type of thing. So we'll see how that goes afterwards. Okay? So I've handed out uh, this thing here. It's just a way of saying the stations of the cross. And of course, there are 14 stations. And on the back end of this thing it talks about a closing scripture reading. And that closing scripture reading could be kind of like maybe a 15th station, you know, where we're talking about after the Passion, you've got the Resurrection of the Lord on Easter Sunday. So we're in the middle of Lent right now. One of the things that Natalie asked of me is to try to relate the talk tonight uh, to your Lenten journey. A few more weeks left to go, so if you've fallen off the of trunk once or twice, you gave this up, and well, you blew it and broke your fast or something like that well let's try and sail into the final couple of weeks um, with, uh, with a strut our, our steps if you will so the history of the stations of the cross first of all it's kind of like a mini pilgrimage um, for those who can't really make it to the Holy Land so um, Pope John Paul II called it an opportunity for the faithful to encounter the living Christ to encounter the living Christ And um, what it is, of course, is following the path of Christ from Pontius Pilate Praetorium all the way to Christ's tomb. And uh, it is based upon writings from ancient uh, uh, theologians, uh, missionaries, and mystics. And so St. Bernard, who was around 1000 AD, he talked about the five wounds St. Francis around 1200 or so was talking about bearing the wounds of Christ's passion. St. Bonaventure um, talks about the meditations of life in Christ. And then Thomas the Kempis talks about the imitation of Christ. All these are famous, uh, famous uh, uh, works of literature that uh, really are, are precursors to what the stations of the cross are. Now, in the course of uh, some of my research on this, I learned that Anglicans and Lutherans practice the Stations of the Cross during Lent. I also read someplace that Methodists, too, did, too. Now, my daughter-in-law, Claire, was a Methodist and a very engaged Methodist after she married our son, Matt, uh, started having kids. uh, She converted to Catholicism, so I asked her as a as a practicing Methodist years ago, did y'all have the Stations of the Cross? She said she didn't remember it. You're nodding your head, do you remember something like that? Does anybody know if the Stations of the Cross are in the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, or the Methodist Lutheran Church? It is? Yes, sir. Okay, all right, good. So we Catholics, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, and maybe the Methodists, we we practice this uh, beautiful, beautiful prayer. So um, let's take a look a little bit about the history of it. So what tradition says is that it goes back to Mary and that after Christ died and raised from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, tradition says that she daily visited the scenes of the Passion. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's tradition with a little T. You all know the difference between little T tradition and big T tradition? Little T tradition is something that we don't have to believe as a dogma of the church. So um, this story about Mary visiting the, uh, uh, the scenes of the pastor would be a little T tradition. It makes sense type of thing. A big T tradition would be something that we have to believe that would be dogma, for example. So an example of that might be the assumption of Mary into heaven which de- was declared a dogma of the church only in 1951 by Pope Pius XII. So, you know, when we talk about its Catholic tradition, there's two types, little tree tradition and big tree tradition, big tea tradition. So well, anyway, so it starts with Mary, and um, then in the course of church's history, along about 313, Constantine was the emperor of Rome and he made Christianity legal. Up until then, Christianity was in the closet, if you will, uh, very uh, uh, persecuted type of religion, and Constantine made it legal in 313. After that, they marked the Stations of the Cross a pathway there in Jerusalem. So the pathway was marked, but at that point in time, Uh, They weren't even called stations, and there weren't necessarily 14. There was anywhere from five to 30, depending upon who was doing them and who was leading them, that type of thing. So um, it became quite popular after Constantine, and as a matter of fact, St. Jerome, um, St. Jerome was the guy who translated the Bible into Latin. It's called the Vulgate Bible, which we still have today. It's called the Vulgate because it was a vulgar language. It wasn't the Greek, it was the Latin language. So, St. Jerome is the guy that translated the Bible into Latin. He also moved to Jerusalem. And in the course of his writings, he's describing the crowds of pilgrims that are coming to visit that site. Then, um, the next thing that we see is the Franciscans in 1342 they become guardians of the Holy Land. So, if any of you remember your history, there's these things called the Crusades, and uh, the Crusades is when uh, Catholics were going to the Holy Land, it had been seized by the Muslims, going to the Holy Land trying to take back the Holy Land. There were a whole series of Crusades that went on. But the last one was I think in about 1291, the last Crusade. Nevertheless, despite all the Crusades, it still remained in the hands primarily of the Muslims. But what happened is uh, St. Francis, who founded the Franciscans, is talking to the Muslim uh, leadership and they grant the Franciscans the ability to manage the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the Holy Land. And so the Franciscans from 1342 all the way to today are the guardians of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's some other Christians in there and Orthodox in there too, but the Franciscans have been there ever since then. So they're the guardians of the Holy Land, but they're also very important in talking about the the erection of the uh, uh, Stations of the Cross. So the next thing that happens is that um, in the 1400s and 1500s, A lot of outdoor shrines spread throughout Europe. And as I mentioned, the number of stations varied a lot. Even what they called it was uh, different. They called it sometimes the Holy Circuit, uh, the uh, Sorrowful Way. Um, The stations, as I mentioned, sometimes were as little as five, maybe as much as 30. Um, They're adding stations in here, like in 1435, they added Veronica they added uh, the daughters of Jerusalem. And there's this guy named William Way and he's the one that turned, called it the Stations of the Cross. So this is back in the 1400s. So you mind you, I talked about the Muslims and saying the Franciscans could uh, be the guardians of the Holy Land, if you will. But Muslim suppression uh, precluded a lot of people traveling to the Holy Land. So with that suppression, It fueled the Stations of the Cross in Europe. I can't go to the Holy Land, so I'm gonna do the Stations of the Cross in Europe. So that brings us to the 1500s here. And then we get in the 1500s, the 16th century. Let's go to the next one. Okay, it's at this point in time that the official title becomes the Via Della Rosa or Sorrowful Way or the Stations of the Cross. And then in 1628, these Franciscans start erecting 14 stations throughout Europe, primarily in Italy, and Florence is up there as, a, as a, a big one. After that, in 1686, Pope Innocent VI said, you know what, all the stations have been outside, it's okay, let's bring them inside. So we see them inside the church here at the cathedral because of what uh, Pope Innocent VI said back in 1686. So, it was okay to put the stations in the church. You didn't have to, okay? Pope Benedict the Thirteenth, he said, you know what? If you do these stations of the cross, you can get indulgences. How many of you in here know what an indulgence is? Raise your hand, okay? How many don't know what they are? Raise your hand, okay. Well, that's what we got. Most of us know what they are, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So anyway, Benedict Thirteenth talks about indulgences. Then in 1731, Pope Clement XII, he sets the traditional 14 stations. So anywhere from 5 to 30, this pope says, okay, it's 14, that's what it is. And um, then in 1742, Pope Benedict XIV, he talks about indulgences again, and he goes to the Colosseum where they have a Stations of the Cross set up in the Colosseum. And he's talking about giving indulgences for those that pray the Stations of the Cross. So this is how we get to 14 stations today. Now, some of the time, you'll uh, you'll see a 15th station where they talk about the resurrection of of Christ after after the uh, crucifixion and death. So anyway, the... um, uh, it's kind of long, a long history, and it's, it is now, I think I think it was, it might have been Benedict XIV, I forget, that said, okay, it's not only okay to have them in the church, but you really should have the Stations of the Cross in the church. How many of you have been to Catholic churches outside the United States? Do they have the Stations of the Cross in the church? how many have been to churches outside of Europe, say in Asia, that type of thing, Australia, do they have stations of the cross there? Okay, so it's universal in the churches all over, all over, I know in the course of my travels when I was a businessman, uh, it didn't matter where I went. I could visit the church, maybe in Europe, but Australia, Mexico, whatever, you'd, you'd see the stations of the cross wherever you went. So, <clears throat> Very popular, very popular meditation that we have. Now, let's talk a little bit about the next slide here. Um, Plenary indulgence, okay. So, so much for the history. Um, I like history, I see some of you really enjoying it too. I see some of your eyes glazing over, so I'm off of history. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about plenary indulgences now. So, the Pope said that you can be given a plenary indulgence for the pious saying of the stations of the cross, you can do it alone or you can do it in a group of people. And if you're physically unable, then with pious meditation on the passion and death of Jesus for at least 15 minutes, you can gain an indulgence. Okay. So a plenary indulgence. Alright, we know that sins are forgiven. Um baptism and in confession right so your sins are forgiven in confession you know a lot of times after the sins are forgiven if you're like me I might beat myself up for having committed my sins so even though I'm totally forgiven I'm still if you will kind of punishing myself this catholic guilt or whatever it is (laughs) well deserved by the way but um, the sins are forgiven But the consequences of the sin remain. Those consequences are what we call temporal punishment. And you might suffer temporal punishment in this world. I think about some people that are are, um, ill uh, and they remain ill for a long time and maybe suffer and die. You think those people suffer so much on earth, that would be the temporal punishment of sin type of thing. And maybe they die they're in the state of grace and they go straight to heaven. But most of us, yeah, not so much. So, if we die, even in the state of grace, you still have to purify your soul to get into heaven. Why? Because heaven's a perfect place. So, it's kind of like the idea of the refiner's fire and that type of thing. So, uh, an indulgence removes the temporal punishment due to sin. So if I die in the state of grace but have venial sins on my soul or even they've been forgiven, I still have this temporal punishment and we call that purgatory. So if I'm in purgatory, I'm being refined so that my soul can be purified to go to heaven. Now, I'm sitting there all alone. I've done my uh, deeds, and I have to pay for them. So what is this indulgence thing about? Um, I'm already dead. I'm in purgatory. I can't help myself. But we can help the souls of purgatory. That's what our church teaches us. And so if we do the Stations of the Cross and we go to confession within a week, um, go to communion within a week. And if we pray for the intentions of the Holy Father, we can get a plenary indulgence. I think it's a week. Maybe it's some play in there, something like that. But think about the loved ones that you have that might have passed on. And um, unless they were a living saint, probably most of us end up in purgatory. So if you do the Stations of the Cross, you can get an indulgence yourself or for your loved ones so why is it that I can do this for my loved ones all you think about is you go back to the Bible um, remember uh, the paralytic and they tore open the roof of the house and read, read, uh, lowered the paralytic in there so that Jesus could cure him these men that lowered him into the house were helping him Same way with us. We can help others that are already in purgatory through indulgences of that type of thing. So uh, there are two kinds of indulgences. One is partial. Um, So, okay, if I'm in there for two years, maybe I get a partial for a year, half my time in there. All this stuff is kind of funny anyway, you know. If I'm dead and I'm in purgatory, my soul, my body's in the grave, What is time to me? Is time just like we have it right now? Is one year 365 days? Or is it 365 minutes? I don't know. We talk about things in time because that's where we are. But a plenary indulgence set in the proper way uh, will allow that person to get out of purgatory. Not because what he did do or what, didn't do but it was what we did for him just like those men that raised the, lowered the paralytic into, uh, into the I think it was Peter's house, Peter's mother's house and that type of thing so as Catholics we very much believe in the power of prayer to help other people we see it all the time when we pray for you know, pray for uh, somebody to get well that's sick or somebody that's having a hard time maybe with drug or alcoholism, that type of thing we pray for them type of thing. So the plenary indulgence is kind of like the same thing. So what I'm suggesting here strangely enough is uh, in preparing better for Easter, maybe if we haven't done a Stations of the Cross go ahead to church and do a Stations of the Cross and do it um, um, as piously as you can and then maybe go to communion and confession within that day and any of your loved ones that have passed on, maybe offer it up for them as a plenary indulgence. Um, Pope Francis, um, uh, our current Pope, I kind of like this guy, he's he's liberal. You know, Spring Hill College was a Jesuit college. They said it's kind of liberal or not. I'm conservative in most respects, but a little (laughs) liberal sometimes. (laughs) Pope Francis, this guy, let's bring him up here. This is what the quote he says. The way of the cross alone defeats sin, evil, and death for it leads to the radiant light of Christ's resurrection and opens the horizon of a new and fuller life. It's the way of hope, the way of the future. Those who take up this way with generosity and faith give hope and a future to humanity. That's a powerful claim. That is a powerful claim. Now, how do we get hope out of meditating on suffering. That's what the station of the cross is. If I were meditating on the suffering of the Savior, how do you get hope out of that? Well, it's a spiritual journey, right? So <coughs> the way of the cross, if you think about it, what's it preceded by? Well, the Last Supper. What's happening in the Last Supper? The Holy Eucharist. So the, and what's happening after the, after the uh, way of the cross? It's the resurrection. So we've got this way of the cross that focuses on the suffering and passion of Jesus Christ and Mary and everybody else's way, the women and all that type. of thing. But the bookends are the, the wonderful gift of the Holy Eucharist and the wonderful gift of the Ascension. So you think about it from that standpoint, I see where Pope Francis talks about it, a radiant light and it talks about hope. So Ironically enough, paradoxically enough, you can do the stations of the cross focusing on on the the cruel and gross suffering yet come out of that with a sense of hope. Um, So the scandal of the cross um, is what leads to our redemption. So this is is all I want to say. I've given you some handouts here and Let's try something here. Um, open up your handouts, if you will. And let's see, how many tables we got here? Two, four, six, eight. okay. Before I do this, is there any questions based on, on my presentation or anything that you have? Okay, all right. <clears throat> the meditations. I want you to take a look at number one. Pilate condemns Jesus to die. Sum that up. I'm saying we need to see the truth of Jesus. We don't need to rely on the pilots for our truth. We don't need to rely on the secular world for our truth. We don't need to rely on what the government tells us for our. We need to rely on what Jesus Christ helps us for the truth. So think about that. That's number one. Um, let's take a look at number five. Simon helps carry the cross. Okay, this is pretty easy. Our job is to respond to those in need. So thinking about Simon helping to carry the cross. Take it to your own personal life. What am I doing to help others in need? People that I know, don't know. Hey, I can throw some money in the collection basket. That's all great. If I go out and personally help somebody, that's where the rubber needs to run. What am I doing in that regard? So that's the fifth station. Sixth station. Veronica wipes the face of Jesus. Now this one is hard. Put yourself in the shoes, her shoes back then. I don't see any guys running up and do this. It took the fortitude of that woman Think about it. you got these Roman guards there. These guys are killers. They're beating Jesus, dragging him along. He falls. They beat him, make him get up. And she walks up through these guards and wipes his face. Wow. What kind of courage do you think that takes? So she's going through that, if you will, to help Jesus. Now, what do we do in our lives today? When people challenge your beliefs. Say, why do you believe in the real presence? Why do you got this position on the bullshit? Why do you do that? Why do you do this? Are you able to stand up and explain yourself? Would just kind of, Kind of like pass on it, you know? I know I used to, years ago, we belonged to a dinner club. And this lady in the dinner club was a nice lady and she was an ex-Catholic. And she used to knock the church off. You kicked my butt on that one, because I just sat back and I didn't say anything. So then I had to do a little bit of study, not to be mean or anything like that, but I do not want anybody to roll over us and our beliefs and that type of thing. So it takes, it takes courage and fortitude, like Veronica had, to stand up in this world today. And um, so that's six. Uh, number seven. Okay, so Jesus falls a second time. So we are okay, he fell once already. This is the second time he falls. And when I read this, I think about the virtue of perseverance. You know, we're all making our way in life, you know? I see a whole bunch of young professionals out here, primarily, and stuff like that. You're all making your bones and stuff like that, hopefully getting your promotions and pay raises, and hopefully you're in a position that you like your work and love your work, and if you're not, maybe you're thinking about changing jobs and how you're gonna be doing that, you know? What you guys are looking at in your lives right now, been there, done yet, but you know, I'm on a a different path right now. But the perseverance to, when you fail, to pick yourself up. You know, I remember one time, the president of my company told him, no, no, he was a senior vice president. He says, you know, a uh, a, uh, belief is not really a belief until it's been challenged. I can sit here, a bunch of like-minded people, and it's easy to spout off our beliefs. When somebody challenges our belief, how do you do that in a way that's not like that, but in a loving kind of way? So this, Jesus falls a second time. is something to meditate on, maybe in terms of perseverance for me hanging tough when it gets tough, whether it's on the job or whatever it might be. So that's seven. So I've talked about four of the 14 stations right there. Pilot, number one. Number five, Simon, helping others. Number six, Veronica, having the guts to do what's right. And seven, perseverance, when somebody knocks you down, when you have a failure. Uh, how do you hang tough and stay strong? So those four stations right there. And so, what uh, I guess what I would like to see is if any one of those four resonates with you personally for any kind of reason. Um, talk with your group about it. Maybe there's some in there that that don't like. I'm looking at I'm looking at 13 and 14 right now. So, that's those are the ones where Jesus is taken from the cross and laid in the tomb. And um, at this stage in our lives, we're senior citizens, I guess. And we have a lot of friends that um, are sick, some of them that are terminally ill. We have friends that have passed on and that type of thing. So, you know, a lot of the people that we know, and some people might have gone to nursing homes and stuff like that,
1: and they're lonely,
0: you know. And so you think about taking from the cross and laying in to the tomb, the kind of loneliness is in there. Hope you guys don't have that, because you guys are all vibrant, 20s, 30s, and all that kind of, the type of thing, nine-five rates going, and all that good kind of stuff. But um, maybe, maybe you know some elder parents, or grandmothers, or grandfathers, or something like that. I maybe mean, you think about their life, and um, you know, maybe I go and visit grandma a couple times a year. But what's she doing, you know, if her husband is dead and she's all alone and stuff like that? So I don't think that applies to too many of you here, but if it does. Um, I would like you to break up in groups and pick one of these, um, either one, five, six, or seven, or if you want, 13 or 15. Pick one of those in your group and talk about.